shout out to everybody that still uses a record player because we could have saved an hour by just throwing out my record player and going down to Best Buy, buying a new one, setting it up, and we still would have been done <laughs> you know, earlier than we were done messing around with that one. Do they have turntables on GoPuff? I don't think they have them on GoPuff, but you know, with Instacart, <laughs> you can get somebody to go to any store really? and pick up anything for you. All right. Anyway, problems with my, I wanted to, I got some new records for my birthday. Oh, by the way, thank you everyone for all of the uh, gifts and the um, shout outs and the well wishes. I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's always nice to feel special on your birthday. Scott, thank mm. you for your gifts. You got me the record cart and then, uh, Joanne by Lady Gaga, the, the Lady Gaga album on right. vinyl. Thank you. I appreciate it. And a nice case for the drone you got me for Christmas. We're going to have a, as soon as we get another record player, we're going to have a, a good time up here. <laughs> good. I'm glad you liked them. <laughs> you, uh, you, you have been listening to records forever, but what keeps you listening to records? Why do you still have a record player at home? This one that I just recently got is an upgrade. You know, and I had a stack of vinyl just sitting in the back of the closet that I'd forgotten about. And then some from friends and all that. But I love going out and buying a new one. So it's, I not, love buying a new so it's not sound quality necessary or, or is it sound quality? It sounds there, like you had there's all these a wider records. To me, there's a wider spectrum. There's a warmth about it that doesn't exist on a compact disc. Don't get me wrong. I still listen to compact discs and playlists from streaming services and all that. But for me, whenever I put on a record, I'm actively listening to it front to back. I don't go and I, I I don't go in and start the record on the middle right. track, right? I mean, and I, I know how to get to my favorite tracks on. Like I have yeah. uh, Beyonce's Homecoming on vinyl, and I can get straight to I Care. You know, I know how to do that. Right. But you're right. I think just cutting on the record is a great way to listen to albums, maybe even in the way that they were intended to be listened to. Exactly. You know, and there's so, an intention for, for the artists who are thinking about that anyway, a thinking flow. about tracking and a flow and all that stuff. All right. Well, I wanted, uh, before we get into the downbeat, I wanted to quickly reprise, maybe we were talking about this in the triloquy because I've been thinking about it all week. You've had me watching that show, uh, not the butterflies, uh, Peacemaker. Mm -hmm. if, if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't seen Peacemaker and you have HBO max, this is not an ad. I probably shouldn't even tell you to go watch it because they need to write me a check if, if I'm telling you how to mm -hmm. watch it. But anyway, I enjoyed it. And it has me, it got me thinking about these characters that some white people play that really portray something not only just problematic, but just hurtful and harmful, you know, white supremacist characters, but the way that maybe sometimes that's necessary or maybe it's not necessarily. So I got to thinking about all of the white villains in the legendary classic films that needed to be there for the sake of impact. I'm thinking about do the right thing. You know, we needed Sal. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about, of course, uh, Get Out. Uh, what else did I write down here? Rem did you uh, remember, do you remember, remember the Titans? No, I didn't see it. See, there were, there were, and I'm sure there were adults, but folks portraying high school kids who had to be acting crazy. Of course, we have 12 Years a Slave, which just horrified me so much that I will never watch that movie again. And, Django. And some of those performances, Django, you know, yeah, because we have Leonardo DiCaprio who, mm -hmm. who took that on. You know, it's interesting, though, with 12 Years a Slave, Brad Pitt said, oh, not me, though. Brad Pitt was, did you, do you remember the film? 
Yeah. Brad, you know, Brad Pitt was the white savior in that film. Mm. He said, I'm not about to be on tape saying the N-word and X, Y, and Z. I thought that was very interesting. That must have been in a contract. Um, of course, Roots, you know, you had the dad off of uh, Brady Bunch being a slave trader. <laughs> that was weird. Uh, and then, of course, you know, one of your favorites, one of my favorites, The Color Purple. Somebody... Somebody had to punch Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Anyway, what, what, what comes what comes to mind? So before we unpack that, I wonder if any movies, any roles come to mind immediately when you think about these legendary white villains. Yeah, it does. And you know, <laughs> I understand how it can be when you're trying to get into a character, when you're trying to develop your character, sure, and you're internalizing all these different aspects. Mm-hmm. Some of it is just too messy and dirty, you know, that I can't, I, I could never wrap my head around some of well, these roles. Well, who, who are some and, of the ones you think right, about? Right. So the ones that are sticking out to me is uh, Ed Norton in American History X. There's mm-hmm. also uh, Ian McCallum in Apt Pupil, but the biggest one is probably Ray Fine in um, Schindler's List. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he had to be just an evil bastard in that movie. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how he did it and, and was able to sleep. So you don't, you've never even gotten close on the stage to portraying one of these characters. No, no. My bad guys were just in general, bad guys. You know, they weren't necessarily racists or white supremacists. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine you uh, get, you know, saying, "Okay, you know what? I'm going to hop back into the saddle. I'm going to take an audition. Something happens in Washington National Theater, you know, invites you to be a part of a play. Do you need to read the script first? Yes. Insert the theater, you know, your dream theater with your dream cast. You talk about you have a friend who's uh, gotten really successful in acting that Mm -hmm. you knew back from uh, Omaha. Uh, What's his name? So I'm not just... Kelsey Jones. Kelsey. So let's let's say you uh, picked up a gig with Kelsey somewhere in this huge theater. You're um, excited. And then, you know, you find out you have to do, you know, something that you don't want to do. You 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 get the script in the mail and it's a copy of, I don't know, the new <laughs> color purple or, you know, 13 years a slave or so what? So <laughs> what? <laughs> You know, you got to be calling your friend Kelsey an N-word and, and get hit him with a whip or let's even take it away from slavery. Maybe you have to uh, be in the 60s or maybe even in the 21st century, just being a motherfucker to your friend Kelsey. You will under no circumstances even consider. No, I can't do it because there's a sphere in the back of my mind that he's going to turn and look at me and have an expression on his face that I'll be able to read as, you know, this still hurts. Yeah, he he going to be like, damn, Scott, the, the, the director's saying cut <laughs> no, I'm not like that. That's funny, though. That's funny. But um, I, I would it, I would not be able to do it, for, not for anybody else. It's for myself. Yeah. All of those things don't feel right in my mouth. I remember. So I would probably suck at it. When I would, what's the uh, what's the movie where uh, what's the name cooks a shit pie? Uh, the Help. Uh, I read the book first, of course, uh, but then watched the movie and just watching some of the behind the scenes. I'm sorry that I'm forgetting the woman's name. So if you remember in The Village, the woman who's uh, the movie, The Village, the woman who's blind. She's also um, in the in the movie called Lady in the Water. She's in a lot of the M. Night Shyamalan films. Anyway, uh, beautiful. Dallas Howard. Dallas it? Howard. I don't is It might be. Uh, she was talking about how in in between cuts. 
when she uh, was working on the help, she would just cry. She would bawl and talk to her um, Octavia Spencer and all of her, her fellow uh, folks uh, talking about, oh, I'm so sorry and X, Y, and Z, and I just hate this. You know, So I, I just wonder, is, is that what it looks like, Scott, to really be an accomplice? We always talk about these stories that need to be told and these narratives that we need to uh, revisit in a truthful way. Is it fair to put accompliceship, being an accomplice into that realm? Maybe being an accomplice means I have to be this ugly character mm-hmm. that I don't want to be. You you just said something, uh, I have to, and right now I don't have to. Listen. So, <laughs> and But neither do these uh, celebrities, neither, neither do these Hollywood actors, but they do it. What? How would you respond to their saying, I'm just trying to be an accomplice? I'm, I'm trying to be an accomplice by sitting up here saying the N word and carrying on <laughs> because these uh, stories need to be told, you know, or whatever, you know, the, um, the narrative. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I would say, I'm going to give you the space to, to develop that and <laughs> see how that works out. And then you can share your results. Do people learn from these portrayals? We've had movies with point. all of these things yeah. over and over again. We're going to be getting it. We're going to revisit the uh, issue of the Emmett Till opera when we uh, get right. into the opus. Do, do people actually learn from these portrayals? Is there, can you think of a movie or a play or something that you watched that moved you? I, I often talk about, um, seven last words of the unarmed mm-hmm. being one of my pivot points in my career. Do you have an artistic pivot point that did what that made me think about things? I, I, I guess I feel like it's triloquy. You often talk about when you interviewed Devon way back opus eight. six or opus eight, how something sort of clicked in your mind, you know, but yeah, everything's but, settled. Everything, but, but not a but, but not a movie or something that moved you in a certain way. Or color purple, color purple, hundred percent got you going there. Mm-hmm. So that means that white man that punched Oprah was doing his job as an accomplice, right? And <laughs> I'm he, just playing devil's yeah. advocate. And he also <laughs> he, too, he, helped, he he played a small role in your being awakened to something, right? Yep. And uh, that's why I think we need people working at all different levels, because we've talked about this before. How are future generations going to learn the stories if they aren't told in a real way? Right. And somebody has to tell them. All I'm saying is it's not going to be me. You say, you say not me, though. Right. I so, you. you know, there, and hats off. Uh, I just don't think that I would cope off stage or off camera yeah. with it very well. I mean, if we were in a play together and you call yourself, do us up. Don't. Don't let it be a scene where I get to have revenge because I promise. Yeah, I know. The director going to have to yell cut very loud. I know. Because I'm not going to hear him the first time. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> this week's downbeat, speaking of Color Purple, uh, the downbeat that uh, I, I want us to visit this week comes from Whoopi Goldberg. But before we get into it, I just want to mention, um, I'm reading here quickly from uh, nationalpublicradio.org, npr.org, the headline, the House passes the Crown Act, a bill banning discrimination on race-based hairdos. Let's keep that in mind before we get into this downbeat. It had to be an act of Congress, literally, for folks to not discriminate against hair that's different, black natural hair and Mm -hmm. and all of these things. And you have folks out here like Whoopi Goldberg, who has traversed Hollywood and beyond. You know, she's an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, you know traversing all of all of these things way beforehand, things that actors, artists coming up now will never have to. As we think about Women's History Month, we have to give it up for Whoopi Goldberg. 
she's been out here for a long time. Yeah, the Color Purple work. was her breakout. Was it? That, yeah. that was the one? Yeah. Um, and it's also, to tell you where I'm at in all this, when you came up and you said, oh, did you read that story about the Crown Act? Mm -hmm. The first place that my mind went was they swatted it down. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought you were about to tell I me. I mean, why, why, why would you not assume that that is what's going on? Anyway, let's hear from Whoopi Goldberg. This is a, a an excerpt uh, from an interview that she did on Behind the Scenes Beauty with DM. And she's basically asked about hair as she had to traverse it over the years. Let's see what she has to say. All the movies that Rosalind Cash did, she always wore wigs because she, and her dreads were down to oh, wow. her backside, but she always had wigs on because uh, people didn't know how to deal with her hair. So when I came along, I was like, I, I can put on a wig, but it seems odd. Right. You know, unless you're doing a period piece, there's no reason for me to be in a wig. Right. Um, and so uh, Julia Walker, who started out doing my hair in 85, I think, 85, 86, you know, had to really create that niche where I could be in the movie with my hair. Right. <laughs> and they had to deal with it. Right, you know, right, right. it wasn't what I had to do. Of course, that directly ties into a lot of the work I'm doing today. Uh, in the third movement, we're going to hear from Jamie Ali Law, who's on the Leadership Council of the Black Opera Alliance with me. And, you know, a part of that work is not only fighting for diversity on the stage, but uh, specifically making sure that backstage, the hair and makeup people at these big opera houses are prepared to deal with the black women and the black men who mm. have big hair, who yeah. have natural hair, to make sure they are trained and know what they need to do to make folks look their best um, on stage. I started wearing locks. Uh, well, I started growing my hair. I'm really trying to think. I think it was my sophomore year of undergrad because, you know, when you're a college student, that weekly haircut, that weekly lineup that you really need, if you have short uh, black folks hair to, you know, look mm -hmm. crisp and clean, you know, it got to a point where I didn't have that. Right. Every week. I didn't have that little $11 every week. So I started growing a fro. So after a year, I had a big old microphone on my head and somebody <laughs> was like, you know what, Gary? And I wish I could remember who it was. Maybe it's good that this person is just slipping my mind. It's just fate got me there. But they were like, you know, maybe you should try getting your hair twisted and see what that looks like. So I did. And that's how it all started back in 2009 I started uh, getting my hair twisted but of course along the way I had lots of issues myself I had to quit a service job I was waiting tables uh, at a restaurant that is uh, now out of business because they fired be, 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 well be, because of all, a lot of their nonsense I won't even bother naming the restaurant because um, you, you wouldn't know it anyway it was a, a southern chain but uh, when I came in one day with my newly twisted hair uh, the manager on duty was like, oh, well, you know, the, the district manager is going to be here. So maybe you can uh, go home and clean yourself up a little bit. I think that's the the phrase that was used and and wow. come back. So I said, OK, I got in my car and never came back. You know, that's what happened then. So uh, in the weeks and months, <laughs> as I'm looking for another job, I find myself um, in front of 
a woman who works for Holiday Inn. I will name this organization. In a final interview, I had gone through a computer round and all this sort of stuff. And at that point, my hair must, I mean, not even shoulder length. Like my ponytail wouldn't even touch my shirt, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I did that. And she's like, well, you know, I would love to, uh, I, I would love to have you on. You know, we can talk about onboarding, but I just have to make sure that you're ready to cut your hair. Your hair isn't exactly regulation for us. So of course I got up and, and walked out. So I, I've had lots of stories to tell issues to go through challenges uh, dealing with my hair. Obviously, you can't speak to having um, natural hair as a black person, but you did wear long hair mm-hmm. once upon a time. I'm sure in 1980 something, whenever you had your long hair, that even was unprofessional or or whatever. Do, do you have those stories or those memories? I started growing it in the summer of 1994, and I knew that I had a class reunion coming up. Mm. And my idea was, I'm going to show you I'm going to show, I'm going to have a drastic change. So you were grown. I'm going to change my look. hair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was in my late twenties and I wore it for four years. Mm. And uh, my dad, yeah, he gave me a hard time about it, but by and large, he was a prince. The woman that I was dating, Jenny, she was the main catalyst. Oh, okay. I did it what made you cut was, it? She kept asking me. <laughs> and you know how and, you said- and, and where is she now? So you can't always do with these- that's that's for another podcast. But <laughs> She's that's for a whole Phoenix. another podcast. But you know, we we shape ourselves for other people who are not even going to be in our life mm. anyway. But I don't know this woman. I don't know y'all business. Um, you were here. You were around when folks were wearing afros for real, though. Yeah. yeah you said you had the long hair in the early nineties. Yeah. So you know, when you were in elementary school, you I mean, you saw the real seventies. Afros. It was great. My my brother Alan had some friends that wore their hair natural like that. But my bus driver, Mike Brown, shout out to Mike Brown. He was the coolest guy. He wore he was wearing platform boots. <laughs> oh, right, driving the bus. And he had uh, bell bottoms and always wearing like a turtleneck with this. Uh, I I don't know what patchouli he was using, but I know that it was disguising something. Sure. Sure. And he was just the coolest. He he was the sort of guy that put out that vibe that whenever I tried to interact with him, no matter what I did, it was it was awkward and terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom got him a Christmas gift one year. And so as I'm climbing on the bus, I hand him this this gift. Oh, thanks a lot. And then later that day, I said, what did you buy him? She says, well, I got him some hankies with M on them. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I gave my bus driver hankies. Well, and when you think back, so, you know, shout out to us having this crown act. I think it still has maybe a past Congress and still has to go through the Senate. I'll have the article mm. linked for y'all to look at. Um, but shout out to the crown act. So, you know, Scott and everybody listening, when you think back to the person who was looking so cool and so smooth with the Afro or somebody that has some really beautiful locks like I have, or maybe locks that aren't so beautiful, you know, cause sometimes they don't be looking beautiful. That's another conversation as well. Mm-hmm. But anytime you're you're seeing that, I just hope folks can understand the self-dedication that's required. Right. You know, the the societal issues that everybody has a story about it. So shout out to uh, Whoopi Goldberg for, you know, uh, persevering and, and and really just pushing forward. She's one of the that's one of the many, many reasons. I mean, hair seems so insignificant when you compare it to the. Emmys and the Oscars and the Tonys, you know, all that stuff she's got. But for me and for, you know, countless other people who wear their hair naturally, black folks who wear their hair naturally, that's very, very significant. So maybe one day um, we'll see 
more natural hair, especially on men and things like broadcast news, more hair on the podium when we're talking about operas and orchestras, maybe even in the armed forces. You know, I couldn't mm. join the army right now with right. this hair. Maybe one day that that will change. You know, a dedication to uh, natural hair requires a bit of attitude and it requires a bit of nerve, just like doing this show requires. Let's go <laughs> ahead and get into it. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 143. Thank you so much for tuning in to returning listeners. Thank you for your continued support and keeping this project relevant and out here in the arts ecosystem. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, this is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and creates proximity with that phrase to news in the world, some dealing with Western classical, some not. We tie up with aesthetics that may or may not have traditionally been considered classical music aesthetics, all toward decolonizing that phrase classical music. So in the future, when we say that phrase, we're not thinking of something European, something that has nothing to do with us. We're thinking about our own sensibilities, our own culture, our own music, and our own conversations. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses and to find out how you can contribute to the Triloquy podcast, visit T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your support, continued support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution, making sure artists have a means of making a living and a life. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. I also want to send a thank you and a huge shout out to uh, everyone over at the Kennedy Center, Jennifer Bowman in particular for having me, Scott, for Let's Go There. It was so cool to see my name on a ticket. I have, I even have it over on that my That must have been a now. rush. Yeah. It was a rush. You know, I, I knew some people there in the audience. I, I had a lot of on the ground support, you mm. know, uh, shout out to everyone that showed up. Uh, Janina, uh, Jerry, all of y'all. Something that I get oftentimes in, in real life, in in-person events, people are like, well, Garrett, you're really good at talking shit on that microphone, but you kind of, you know, tamp it down in person. So I need to I need to do my job now. I, I need to make sure that I am going there. So uh, I'll be back for uh, Let's Go There at the Kennedy Center in May. We're going to break down the car- uh, the opera Carmen and mm. talk about sexuality and sex and women empowerment, all sorts of. So it's, it's going to be really incredible. So I'll be sure to um, have information on that so everybody can come and support me and support me talking my mess. See, that's the thing. Content that will get you heckled. <laughs> and maybe, maybe we'll get into that later today. And then I also want to uh, send a thanks to the Brookings Arts Council over in South Dakota. I'll be there this week doing the good work and spreading the news. You know, uh, Danelle, our friend uh, Danelle, uh, said that there's a little black contingency over there in Brookings. Did Is you that know right? That? I had yeah. no idea. So maybe I'll, I'll even uh, find the people of color over in South Dakota. Just so humbled, Scott, to be able to spread this work and to have these conversations in as many different arenas as possible. I think we can really do it. But we just got to keep on keeping on, as Gladys Knight said. We're going to hear some Gladys Knight today as well. But Good. for right now, let's get into movement one. 
All right, we're here in the first movement where we're checking our accidentals. For the, there are a lot of new people coming every week, so I just you know quarterly I like to offer the reminder. So in this first movement, we take some of the uh, news out in the arts ecosystem or beyond, and we offer our reactions to it with a sharp, something good, something we're excited about, a flat. Something that, you know, we need to we need to get somebody together. Maybe we need to talk bad about somebody. And then oftentimes we come in with naturals that um, are either our way of saying, oh, we aren't sure how we feel. It could go either way. Or we use naturals as a means of updating on something that we talked about previously. So I'm going to get us started this week in this first movement with a natural from operawire.com. So last week we talked a little bit about this Emmett Till opera. A lot of people are upset about it. There's a lot of opposition, a lot of conversation happening. And um, from operawire.com, we have composer Mary D. Watkins and librettist Claire Koss respond to criticism of Emmett Till. I'm going to read a little bit here. It says, composer Mary D. Watkins and librettist Claire Koss have responded to the controversy. The work, which will potentially, I'll say, have its premiere on March 23rd uh, in New York City, recently came under fire from the Black Opera Alliance, which stated in a social media post that the work was told through a white lens by a white writer. Emmett Till explores the tragedy of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy who was lynched by two white men in Mississippi back in 1955, and um, the Black Opera Alliance didn't appreciate a white narrative being uh, framed around this. So let me let me just uh, go a little bit more uh, in, into this response, Scott, and then we can talk a little bit. It says here, yes, the opera has a fictional white character, but it isn't about her, Watkins stated in an official statement. I should say that um, Watkins is, Mary D. Watkins has written the music, and this is a black woman, but folks are calling foul with uh, the white woman who wrote the libretto. So anyway, mm. she goes on to say, it is a true story that happened in our American history that could be told by anyone. Documentaries have been made, books have been written, songs have been sung by those moved to express their reaction to the true story of the brutal murder of a 14-year-old boy. The story is told from the viewpoint of one who recognizes that staying silent instead of confronting a vicious system allows the dehumanization of human beings to be a way of life. She comes to the realization that she and others like her have a responsibility to speak out and condemn racism. So Scott, it says here, this opera is not about a white woman, but it's just told from her perspective and is a means of talking about how staying silent is deadly. Well, does that not mean that this opera is about this fictional white woman? I mean, tell me. Yeah, just getting getting your perspective on it. Maybe yeah. I have it wrong. No, no, I, I see where you're coming from because even I was confused when we were talking about this last week because I thought it actually was about mm -hmm. the woman that made the accusation. So I, that that was my fault. Um, <clears throat> but even so, but, to me, it still it still seems like it is about it's about but, Emmett Till, but it's about her viewpoint on it. But it based but on what I've read here. From what I'm hearing, it also sounds like it still makes the white woman the hero. Yeah. Or the virtuous one in that they have a real, real realization that they need to speak up and say something. Right. It's the feeling that makes her a hero, right? Not not the fact that this 
uh, this boy is dead. And, you know, the woman who accused Emmett Till, who in real life is still walking around here comfortable, hmm. doing fine. You know, we have all that. But, you know, th th there's a story to be learned with that realization. You know, uh, when this opera is supposed to premiere on uh, the 23rd, that's the day this comes out. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, and there's also a piece uh, by NPR that's supposed to be coming out. And I was interviewed for that. And I uh, and I offer my opinion. We'll see if that comes out, how they edit and skew my words. But the, mm. what the interviewer told me was that um, he had already spoken with Miss Koss, the white woman who wrote the libretto. And her point was that this is for white people to come to their own realizations today. The The argument is that, well, this is what white people need to hear so it can help them connect this story to what's going on today. What's your response to that? We often talk about how, you know, white folks need to be the ones engaging these conversations. Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, now now I'm listening in a different way to, you know, after that you read some of that statement yeah. and what you just said. So now I'm a little bit more open-minded to it, but I still have to question what this fictional woman, what light is she painted in? Mm -hmm. Is uh, all, all of a sudden now she's um, uh, a good person because for the, she for the came realization? To the realization, right? That's right. still the road. So that, that's what I'm saying. Does um, because you know the uh, I don't know how to put it. They, the, um, just because you make one right decision doesn't necessarily make you a hero or non-racist, right? And my argument is- Am I going too far off? No, I, no, I, I hear you there. My argument to the idea that, you know, this is for white folks to come to their own realization mm -hmm. is the fact that you're still tokenizing Till's story there. and Till's legacy. Yeah. Because if you want to write a white huh. realization opera, make something up. You know, you you didn't have to use this story mm. if that's the point. So I that, see your point. That, I, I feel like in multiple directions, we can still point to ways how I personally, I'm, I'm just speaking for myself here, cannot be comfortable with this because, you know, it would be one thing if the libretto was by a white woman and we're censoring Till or uh, Emmett Till's mother or, or, you know, who we heard from. Right. You know, so that would be one thing. But the fact that, a part of this narrative at all, much less at the center, is about a fictional white woman who is a teacher who came to this realization and now she realizes that staying silent is deadly. I feel like the opera is, okay, well then what did she do? Let's let's make the opera, if you if, if a white woman wants to write a libretto to inspire other white folks, let's make the opera about the actions that actually take place, hmm. the equity that is manifested. You know, I feel like that is the art, but not about a, a, a white person coming to their feelings, you know, and I, I, yeah, I, I'm I almost to... feel uncomfortable even, you know, pointing this at white folks directly because there are a lot of people involved. There are black people involved in the orchestra of this opera, you know, who and, and that makes the conversation a little um I hate to say murky, but it just it makes it complicated because I, I affirm black folks trying to be out here making a living as an mm -hmm. as an artist. But at the end of the day, if I had a budget, if I had a million dollars to give each of these artists, they would be doing something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we have to talk about what opportunities we're putting out into the space. You've had um, a play at uh, your former theater protested. Mm -hmm. At what point would you say, OK, well, 
folks are not happy. Let's let's go ahead and pull it. When we were talking about this last week, we were talking about this petition reaching almost 5,000. Well, right now it's at 12.3,000 as, as we're taping wow. this right now. So if there were 12.3,000 people outside of the Shelter Belt Theater with picket signs, we would have would a traffic have problem. We would have a traffic problem. <laughs> right. So now you have a traffic problem. Now the police are out here. Now, you know, folks can't get to, you know, all of this, all, all of these snowballing effects. Do yeah. you still do the play? That's a great question. Would all of a sudden I have a change of heart mm -hmm. or would I be emboldened while drunk on the on the power of uh, and of this course it depends show. what it is because if you feel like because you said uh, the show that y'all were doing was Jesus Christ Superstar or something no no it was a show called Corpus Christi and it told the stories of the Bible as if all of the disciples were gay men right okay so no one can point that to racism or even homophobia so that's one thing to feel in, empowered of course mm -hmm. you wouldn't be involved in some sort of racist play or or, or whatever but I don't know well, what, what do you think I'm putting you on the spot they have over 12,000 signatures. Should they go ahead and pull the plug? Would you pull the plug if you were somehow involved with this? Would you pull the plug at 12.3 thousand signatures to not put the opera on? Wow, that's a great question um, because what little bit of it I know and now things are coming clear, I'm, I, I, I'm going to find out more. Well, we'll because, see if it happens. Because it... it might, and if there are picketers, it might it is it might be a way to deliver the message, even if the, it's not entirely the right one. Uh, I, like I'm saying, um, all of a sudden, I'm, my mind's a little bit more open to it after hearing this statement and uh, clearing up a, a misconception that I had about it. This is uh, supposed to take place, by the way, at John Jay College. And I just want to read one of the comments under this petition. It says here, I want to comment that the John Jay Black Student Union was not informed about this opera. We found out through TikTok. Most people at John Jay do not know this opera is happening. I feel like this is deliberate and dealing with work and five classes, as well as starting a movement to stop the school from putting on this tone deaf ass play is mm. what it says here, puts unnecessary pressure on students. And I think that's an important thing. To There's note. another aspect like, I hadn't thought of. These, yeah. kids, these folks are busy. Yeah. You know, it, it's hard being a college student and out here working. And so and now I have to protest this that, yeah. that the black student union didn't even know about. So if we're trying to raise awareness, if we're trying to affirm the truth of American history, why? My question, why didn't the black student union know anything about this? Why weren't they at the center of it? Why weren't why wasn't every member of the black student union at that school offered a free ticket so that they could make sure that these folks are seeing this opera because they knew what's up. I they knew what was... they knew what people's reaction to it would be. So I, I feel like the the trenches are being dug deeper on mm. both sides. We'll see if they decide to put this thing on. I forgot it was at a school. Yeah. Well, well that, we that, that weighs into it. Yeah. We we will see. So we'll we'll probably have a have an update for y'all next week. We're gonna get out of this accidental with a different piece of music that speaks to the death of Emmett Till. You know who Bob Dylan is, of course, right? Did, I do. Did you know that uh, he has a song I hear called The Death of Emmett Till? I, I didn't. I'm... Well, let's take a listen. It was down in Mississippi Not so long ago When a young boy from Chicago town Walked through a southern door 
this fateful tragedy You should all remember well The color of his skin was black And his name was Emily Till Some men they dragged him to a barn And there they beat him up They said they had a reason But I... So what do you think? I first heard this today As well as your first hearing it today I might have heard it before But did I don't Bob, remember did, it Did Bob Dylan misstep By writing this song? Um, if he did, it certainly hasn't hurt his career Sure, sure. But again, the question is, do you think that Bob Dylan misstepped by writing that song? No. I don't think he did either, because this isn't about and and and, and I can hear arguments, even, you know, people saying that that's inappropriate. But if we're talking about raising awareness among white folks and, and instead of going into the fiction of it all, just sticking with what happened, which I feel like Bob Dylan did hear and and this is not me caping for him but sure. I, all of that to say I do think that there are ways for people who are not black to raise awareness and maybe even to raise awareness in an artistic way I just don't think that creating an ease in a predominantly white audience showcasing if not censoring at, at the very least showcasing a fictional character who says oh well this is what I'm feeling right now that's the part mm -hmm. for me so again, we'll we'll see how this goes. This isn't a a clear cut sort of conversation because there yeah. are a lot of moving parts. But a lot. I think it's I think it's something. Anyway, all right. Well, let's uh, uh continue on with a sharp in this first movement. Uh, this headline comes from the Charlotte Observer. It says, "Classical station WDAV recently made U.S. radio history. Why? That means a lot." To me, let's uh, let's read a little bit. This is by Evan Santiago. It says here, classical music does more than just soothe the soul. That could, that could be the end of the article for me, especially <laughs> when it comes to classical radio, because that's how folks want to treat it so much. But I'll, I'll continue. Um, it tells a story that upon first listen can seem so far removed from our own. That's where the beauty of it can be found in the trickery. I'm going to uh, uh, scroll down here a little bit. It says in January, WDAV made radio history by topping the Charlotte market and becoming the first ever classical music radio station to be number one in any market in the country. The station averaged 102,000 listeners per week in January, a 36% increase over the same time last year, WDAV said in a news release. That gets a round of applause mm -hmm. if anything does. I mean, number one in a radio market and above all of the, that means they were above the hip hop stations they were above the top 40 this is really really incredible to me um i personally have a relationship with wdav you know i have to uh, shout them out and specifically shout out tamberly ferguson over there uh the sound of 13 one of my shows has been over at D uh, wdav they run my kwanzaa stuff mm -hmm. um they're already um on board to um, to engage some of my upcoming projects that I have coming. It's really, really incredible. And I'm so proud of them. I should also mention, you know, I brought up Tamberly. You've met Tamberly, Scott, mm -hmm. when we went to the Sphinx conference back in 2020. She made sure to connect with us. She uh, bought us lunch and just really wanted to dig into digital media. Uh, Tamberly, by the way, is digital media 
um, and strategy. That's that's her right. uh, a job description over there. Um, you know, just talking about different strategies and developing new audiences and what are y'all doing at Triloquy and what are your ideas about it? And it didn't just feel like, uh, you know, the, some of the cultural vo- culture vultures who will just try to see what you're doing and apply it. You can tell that, she, I don't know everybody over there at WDAV, but certainly uh, Tamberly and the other folks I've been in contact with uh, through the collaborations, you can tell they really care. And they care about engaging the audience and they care about really moving the needle and approaching the idea of classical radio in a different way. I think it's incredible. I'm so happy for them. I have to give a shout out to the general manager, Frank Dominguez. Um, I'm uh, familiar with his work and he is he was even brought in to lead a couple seminars at KVNO when I was working there. So, you know, we got, you know, air checks with Frank. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, you know, just through social media and conferences and things, you know, uh, Frank knows what he's doing. And on top of it, he's a great guy. Shout out, Frank. How are you? Congratulations. One of the things that I had to come to terms with and that I'm continuing to come to terms with is, you know, you mentioned air checks, how when I was in uh, public radio at my last station, mm-hmm. the expectation was to speak to an audience that I wasn't picturing in my mind. That, mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I'm I'm coming to terms with, especially when it comes to the ways that I was directed to talk about hip hop and and mention those sorts of things, not as something that's just my bag, but to contextualize it as some, some little guilty thing. Like, you know, I actually tuned in over to hip hop the other day and X, Y, and Z and da, da, da. And it reminded me of this piece The you know, so, so for that sure. to be the, the sort of uh, connection. Um, I feel like a lot of these public radio stations, especially the classical stations, um, a lack of honesty or or not allowing staff especially on-air hosts to engage the organization and the audience in an honest way i think that's one of those huge barriers even as we sit here right now scott and i'm not trying to get you in trouble but i don't feel like we can have the conversation about minnesota public radio that i really want to have because of the parameters that are built around you as an employee of that organization. And I can't help but to see that as a barrier. Mm-hmm. Maybe if we could have some of those real conversations specifically about that radio institution, something could prop up that could make a national organization uh, organization with national reach the first in the country to top the charts in a radio market, you know. But instead, that's WDAV who is making history. Arts organizations love to follow, so follow the lead of this organization over there in the Charlotte area because they're doing the work the rest of y'all are not. You know, I've come to you a lot and asked, does my mere presence on this pod handcuff you from what you really want to say? Yeah. I what do you, so let's, where, where I are we with that? Where, well, I, I, I don't think it does because I say what I want to say. I'm saying that the conversation can't really happen because if you walk away from the microphone today and another co-host comes in who doesn't work in public radio, there's still a conversation that can't be had. So that's that's really the frustration. Not that I feel like I'm gagged because I say whatever the hell I want here on my platform, but I feel like it's not just about me preaching or me spouting out things. It's about conversations happening. And I want, but didn't you say that you, you didn't, you say you didn't want to get me in any hot water. No, I said, I, I didn't want to get you any, any, in any hot water, but I'll say it anyway. You know, that I look, 
I'm, I'm not not saying anything right now. <laughs> I believe that some of the rules and regulations that are applied on employees really across the board, but certainly in public radio, the rules and regulations that are applied to on-air hosts and other folks, I think that is inhibiting the actual conversation. Let's let's take it away from uh, you specifically. I remember when I was an employee at Minnesota Public Radio, I was informed that I have to let them know and get permission anytime any other organization wants to interview me or engage me for something. I can't have a political bumper sticker or, or signage um, outside of my home. You know, shout out to Maria Issa. If I was still there, I couldn't be involved with her campaign in the way that I am now, especially as a, a, a delegate now for the election and, um, and and all of that stuff that's coming up. So there, hmm. there, there are just so many barriers for the sake of this so-called neutrality that actually inhibit change and inhibit transformation. I'm sure that if you tune in to WDAV for 24 hours, certainly if one of Garrett McQueen's projects is on the air, as they have been, you're not going to hear just some neutral, flowery stance. You're going to hear a narrative that is actually pointed, not to make people feel uncomfortable or guilty, but just to highlight a truth as I see it, as a presenter, as a host, as a as a creator. I want to see the industry move away and when I say the industry, I'm specifically talking about classical radio. I want to see the industry move away from this idea that the hosts have to be these good guys, these neutral parties, these folks that aren't here to ruffle feathers because ruffling the feathers is what we need. That's that's how the change happens. And that's how you make history as a classical radio station by doing something that's different. Uh, I see what you're, I see what you're talking about. Um, as far as, um, engaging the community. Um, what were some of the things that you listed off at first, the way the, the, the things that you were limited on? Uh, as far, well, the big one for me was participating in other media with, without their permission. So if, if the New York times, for example, wanted to uh, talk with me or whatever, mm-hmm. that, that is something that I would have to get permission for. I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that. What, if they, what if they wanted to promote that? That's and they can promote it when it comes out that, that, that I have to ask permission first and then they say yes and then it happens and then they promote it. How about we cut out all of that middle stuff and and I do what I do when I'm off the clock and then y'all can promote it if y'all want to. What if what if I went and did an interview with somebody and then they came to you and said, oh, hey, I was talking with Scott about how you X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And you would say, well, I, I didn't know anything about that. And I would I would be overjoyed, Scott, to hear you actually on someone else's platform talking about something because you told me that you turned down all the stuff. When they ask you to be on a panel or do an interview, you say no. That's what you told me. After you were terminated? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't take any interviews, after, not after NPR So, news, So that's no. my response to your question. I would be overjoyed to hear you giving it up on somebody else's platform because your voice is also important. And again, Scott, you have national reach. I'm, I'm not trying to gas you up or egg you on or anything, but if I were still um, tied to a public radio station, a classical radio station, and I heard this news, my competitor spirit would jump out. And I would be pissed that we aren't the first to do that. So I would do everything I can to figure out how we can be the second to top a a local market's radio charts as a classical station. So I'm just trying to inspire. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just trying to because at the end of the day, if tomorrow Minnesota Public Radio puts out a, a headline saying, "Oh, now." Uh, this month, we were number one in our market. That's good news because that means some of the things that are happening there are changing for the sake of reaching more people. Things have to change, you know, mm-hmm. for, for that to happen. So that, that would be exciting news for me, not for the sake of the institution, but for the sake of the audience. So that that's that's really all I'm trying to inspire here. Do, does your competitive nature not jump out when you see that the organization that you're a part of was not the first to chop local Radio charts. That, I'm not going. I'm not going to say competitive or pissed that they did it. I'm going to not, I, definitely I will, not pissed. I would immediately wonder what they did. Yeah, how it happened so that I can start doing that. Mm. Well, like I said, I think what I see as now an outsider is that the the genuineness, the honesty, the the ability to be trill, <laughs> if you will, is not promoted in in those circles. Um, maybe not even allowed. So mm. you're, you're you're in the biz and so is Tamberly. So y'all can talk and you can find out what's happening. And maybe Minnesota Public Radio can achieve what WDAV has achieved one day. Or maybe not. We'll see. Just for one day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and get on from this because you're getting quiet. So. <laughs> okay. Um, wait, uh, do, do you have something else? Um, whatever. What. No, I don't. <laughs> so among the pieces <laughs> that uh, that I've been putting in some of my programming, some of the program that's made it uh, to WDAV um, comes from an ensemble from the African continent, the Buscade Soweto String Ensemble. I don't know if you've heard of them, Scott, but Mm-mm. they they uh, create some really incredible recordings of some of the uh, Western classical standards, but also of some of their own classical music. So this is a track that I've included in some uh, content recently. Excuse me. And it's called Sunrise. This featured the Biscayed Soweto String Ensemble. We'll take a little bit of a listen here. WDAV listeners and staff, congratulations to you. just to be clear, I'm not trying to throw rocks or cast blame on anyone because this is about celebrating WDAV and there are things to learn and there's the potential for so much. Again, remember why you fell in love. We know why you got into radio, a parking spot, but remember why you fell in love with it. I fell in love with public radio because of the opportunity that I felt like I had to really engage the community and dialogue through music and to really reach into a, a, a local populace and make them feel something. That is something that I really took seriously. Um, shout out to WUOT. We were you know, always up there on the charts, but we were never number one in the market. So it just yeah. blows my mind that a classical radio station has managed to do that. And every program director, every radio host and everyone in between across the country, I think needs to be sending an email to WDAV oh, and figuring out what they can do. He's blowing up. I'm, I'm sure. Su- I'm sure that I'm, I'm and, and I hope he is, but 
I also can't help but to feel that it's sort of a, oh, well, that's a different market. Like, I just feel a lot of, oh, well, energy mm. uh, following this. Mm. And that's that that that's why no one's calling into y'all's pledge drives and giving y'all any money. All right, we got one. <laughs> it fires me up, but we're going to move on. Uh, one, one last little accidental here. I'm going to go ahead and give this a natural because... I don't know how to feel about it one way or another. Uh, the uh, This comes another one from Opera Wire. It says, Metropolitan Opera to ban Heckler <laughs> from future performances. Just one individual heckler? <laughs> I guess it was only one or in there. Or heckling and that's across the, the board. If it was only one heckler in there that kept coming back and stood proud in their heckling, shout out to them. Because that means they heard something they didn't like and they were truthful and honest and spoke to it. That's why I give this a natural. Mm. Because be polite to artists and I don't well let me let, let me read a little bit here it says here the company told the New York Observer this is the Metropolitan Opera the uh, company told the New York Observer although opera singers are vocal athletes they should not be subjected to the kind of heckling that sports spectators get away with in stadiums see I don't like it I don't like it because it says, well, this is a civilized space. This, this, mm. you know, anyway, I'll mm -hmm. continue on. Thankfully, this was an isolated incident. Most opera goers are opera lovers who respect the extraordinary ability and talent of our artists. The Met is attempting to identify the rogue audience member who quickly exited the theater after his outburst since he will not be allowed to attend future performances and she is not in allowed in this chilies ever again <laughs> right is that not sort of the energy that that <laughs> comes with it it just it sounds very oh well you know we, we had one rebel rouser in here so mm. you know it, i don't know I, you have no technique <laughs> that's what the that's what you're reading the that's the critique you have no technique at soprano brenda ray when she concluded her um her, piece her, there. Her, her aria from uh, um, Aria's uh, Ariadne of Naxos. Mm. Let me let me just uh, read a little bit more here, just to offer some context. It says Ray's publicist said, "This is your semi-annual reminder that artists are people too, and they see the posts they are tagged in, and they they list this you know uh, imaginary situation with a a post because you know they don't they don't even have the ability to actually go on Twitter and actually call something out you know for the sake of their little bit of neutrality but I just I, I want to you know ask you this you know we can talk about yeah shout out to the rogue who is going into the Met and shaking the table and X Y and Z but also yes I agree with the publicists these artists are people and while. Our heckling, Scott, and, and our biz doesn't come from a stage. It can come through the emails. It can come through yeah. the DMs or 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 whatever. How do you how do you balance those sorts of hecklers with just letting it roll off your back? You know, because yeah. that has to be a yeah. part of it. Some too, of right? them, yeah, some of them do sting. Of course, um, if you're already having a bad day or if things don't just seem to be going right, they can resonate a little bit more. Yeah, but. <clears throat> You know, when I was at KVNO for the first hour of my shift, I was answering the phones. Yeah. You know, so that was that was the real heat. Mm -hmm. And really, this heckling isn't anything. I'll take you back to the 18th, 19th century when people would throw rotten food at you if mm -hmm. they didn't like what you were doing. You know, so try maintaining character, dodging cabbage you I'm, know, on stage. Uh, I want to make it clear to everyone. I'm not here saying that people should be heckled, period. Like where, whether it's opera, football or whatever, I, I'm I'm not signing off on the heckling. I'm just saying <laughs> that if we want to open up the space to broader audiences, 
somebody is going to offer an opinion. <laughs> and that's something that we time, have to deal with. In you know? real time. And the, the, the good and the bad, you know, one of the early lessons that I learned as a broadcaster is that the, the emails, the voicemails, the letters that celebrate you and the folks heckling you in one way or another, both of those are in the minority. Most people are just listening or most people yeah. are just there. Most folks at the Met couldn't even name the the soloist, much less um, quote the aria she's singing or speak to the, you know, so sure. people have bad days and all that stuff, you know, hurt people, hurt people. We can get into all of that. But again, I'm, I'm giving it a natural. I'm not going a, a sharp or a flat because I feel like it's a part of the biz and and I have feelings too. I'm a human. I get uh, emails that that hurt my feelings. I get emails where folks are using N word. You'll be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't. Well, be you know, you showed me some. I was um, surprised. So I mean, so it, it's a it's a part of it. Um, I just think that there's there's learning to be done on on both sides. Very fine people on both sides. I would oh, I would <laughs> paraphrase Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the door of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. Okay, wait a minute. So are we talking about people out here working minimum wage jobs, construction, doing all this stuff, working hard every day, the dust of their brow, the blood, sweat, and tears, whatever you just read? Or are we talking about people who are singing opera? See, we can... We, and that's that's uh, that's another part of my not being able to give this a sharp <laughs> because we can't just put a, all this bubble wrap around these opera singers as if they're not human. That article said they're human and they have feelings and X, Y and Z. Yeah. You know? But I feel like we go too far the other way and just act like if the lady or the man didn't sing with no technique that night, we're not supposed to say nothing. Maybe maybe something was wrong with the with the aria and the person in the audience was the only one with the with the mm -mm I don't, to call it out. I don't know. Was it was it corroborated elsewhere? I don't I don't know because you know opera goers love to be so polite and, and so quiet. Well until I just it's go, time to clap. That's why I don't believe any of the reviews. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you are. Reviews, period. You just don't believe. No, because if you believe the good ones, you got to believe the bad ones. Yeah. And I choose not to. And even, even when when folks, I already said, you know, at the beginning of this opus, and I won't call them hecklers at all. But when I'm in person, they're like, oh, Garrett, I thought you were going to give it up. I thought you were going to be a little, you know, oh, a bit they more got a, They got a you mouth know? online. So, so, that, so that means next time I'm in front of a crowd, that means next time I go to the Kennedy Center for Let's Go There. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be some cuss words. Okay. You know? <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that'll do it this week for the accidentals. <laughs> you know, one little heckling thing that comes to mind for me, I'm not going to say this person's name, um, but I will say that this person years later sent me, um, offered me just a really heartfelt and genuine apology for some of the extreme heckling. You know, this this person oh. down at my first radio station didn't appreciate the ways I was trying to stretch that aural aesthetic of so-called classical music. I will play some uh, Edgar Varese on the radio and they would just write these emails saying, oh, well, you're such a sucky host and I'm so glad you're leaving. And blah, blah, blah. anyway, so, yeah, so again, so fast forward a couple of years later, I get just this heartfelt apology. You know, I was going through it that day and, you know, I appreciate now what you're doing. I see. Anyway, all of that to say, yes, the heckling 
impacted me. And that bit of heckling that sticks out in my mind most clearly has been my fuel to keep going. Oh, I made them mad. Oh, well, let's see how many more people I can make mad. Mm. So to get us into the second movement, I'm going to play the piece of music in question. This piece of music by Edgar Varese, a, a composer from France, is called Ionization. Is actually a piece for percussion. And it made the hecklers mad, at least that heckler that day who eventually apologized. So let's see what you think. Ionizations by Edgar Varese. That instrument that sounded kind of like a door opening. <laughs> that, that just Was that a chair here. creak? That's called a lion's roar. So you see, it's there's an opportunity in aesthetics like that to teach people about the instruments hmm. of the orchestra, specifically the percussion section. What would you expect the hecklers uh, to do if you aired that? Well, would you expect some hecklers that in the That was the worst lion's roar <laughs> soloist right. I have ever heard. Right, and see, that's the thing. See, if the hecklers get smart and start talking about, well, you know, the ratchet came in about three beats late, and I'll Garrett, be like, okay, well, fine. You Garrett, got me. Garrett, I just, <laughs> I just three days ago responded to an email where the listener did not think the guitar belonged on stage with an orchestra. Mm. Well, they're wrong, so, though. Right. No, all I'm saying is, is that, of course, I would get an email for that. If I'm getting an email for classical guitar, then yes, I'm going to get an email for Lions Roar. You know, if a program director ever decides to put me on the live air again, I'm I'm reading the hecklers live. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, we just listened to such and such, and I won't say last names. I won't give full governments, but I'll say, and, you know, Sally thought that da 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 I don't, I don't think it's an issue of a program director that would hire you. I think it's the job that is there a job that you would even take? Well, listen, if, if there's a program director listening, if you will let me do my show from my home studio that likely has better equipment than y'all got anyway, let's talk. Shade. <laughs> All right, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to take a piece of music that we've been spending some time with over the week. And instead of repeating it, in its entirety, we're going to take the second ending and talk about why we were drawn to it so much. So I'll get to start it this week. Last week, remember, we were talking about the Silk Road in residence down at Spelman College. Yeah, uh, Silk Road uh, retweeted me, so uh, shout out to y'all. Did I, they? I appreciate nice. that. And um, again, I'm really excited about the collaboration y'all doing down there at Spelman. Anyway, listening to Silk Road got me thinking about the Silk Road. And and instead of, you know, traveling west as the Silk Road does, I went east and started digging back into some of the uh, Chinese classical music. Mm. Um, you had me watching the show Peacemakers, mm -hmm. and they're talking about butter. I won't give out any spoilers, but they're they're talking about butterflies in that uh, in that show. And so all of the, those things circling around in my head 
you know, and, and uh, you know, again, not a spoiler alert, but, you know, things circling around in my head yes. <laughs> uh, brought me to a piece of music uh, called the Butterfly Lovers Concerto. It's a piece of music by Cheng Gang and Ki Zhang Hao. This piece of music was actually in my audition for Minnesota Public Radio, you know, mm. when they give you an hour of programming right. and they had the names all fucked up, spelled all wrong. So I came in the door making corrections. I'll say that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I first learned the Butterfly Lovers Concerto when I was an undergraduate. It was a piece of music that uh, the orchestra played and it's just stuck with me for so long. I got a new flute um, about a month ago from China and I, and, and I told myself, the first thing I'm going to put on Instagram, first thing I'm going to put on social media with me demonstrating this flute, it has to be a piece of Chinese music. I'm going to, you know, offer that much equity sure. and honor to where this instrument came from. And I decided, you know, again, with all of these things floating around in my head, the first thing that came to mind was the flute solo that's at the beginning of this concerto. And I want to take a listen to it now. Y'all can hear how I managed to do it on social media, but on a Chinese flute and a Chinese orchestra, it offers something really special. And this is what it sounds like. Isn't that just beautiful, Scott? It reminds me of like the first bird of spring, you know, it's the, evocative, the, yeah. the things, the the snow and the ice is starting to melt here. And it, it just reminds me of this time of year. And it's just such a beautiful sound. But uh, what really uh, moves me about this particular uh, recording, it comes from a, actually a youth orchestra, a Chinese youth orchestra. Um, I'll, have, I'll have it linked in the uh, description. They take this orchestral work that many folks here in the West know. You're familiar with the Butterfly Lovers Concert. Sure. I'm sure you've aired it. But they use Chinese instruments mm -hmm. and place them in this in this orchestra. You know, it's it's interesting how folks in other parts of the world don't need to be convinced of the concept of decolonizing their classical music. You know, China has that figured out. Mm -hmm. We're still working on it. But hearing all of these pipas and ahus and they uh their, their trumpets in the trumpet section are trumpets with reeds. So it has sure. that really like um and, I, and, and this is a good word. I'm using a really abrasive sound, uh -huh. you know, that that's really, uh, really bright. It's such an incredible performance. Um, but also, you know, we're in Women's History Month. So I will have to uh, say that the violinist, the woman who's recording that I first learned that most folks learn um, is a woman, a violinist named Takako Nishizaki. She's uh, actually Japanese. She's not from China, but uh, she came over to the, to the United States, helped propagate the Suzuki method. I'm not, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that, sure. but okay. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the teaching method for, for kids yeah. um, and is an important part of women's history. So if you don't know the name Takako Nishizaki, definitely uh, look that up. But in the recording that I'm going to link in the description, it's not 
a violin concerto. It's an Arhu concerto. And all of the violins and the orchestra are Arhus. It's incredible to see all of those musicians going at it. So we're going to listen to just a little bit of this opening of the, vi the violin. So it's the Arhu soloist in this recording is a woman named Sun Juan. Beautiful Arhu soloist. In her opening phrase, you can hear the interplay with that flute that I love. Yeah. It's really incredible. Let's take a listen here. I just think it's so beautiful. One of my favorite things about being an orchestral musician was when we got to play the concertos and you have those moments when you sitting back in the orchestra, you get to have interplay with the soloist up there. Beethoven's violin concerto has a really great moment like that for the bassoon hmm. and the violin. The last time I got to do that uh, was with Midori, another very famous Japanese yeah. uh, violinist. And just being able to have that dialogue in front of not only the whole orchestra, but the whole audience, it's so beautiful. If, if for some reason you're unfamiliar with the Butterfly Lovers Violin Concerto by uh, Chen Gong and He Zhang Hao, please look that up. I'll, I'll have a, uh, a performance of it again linked in the description with a Chinese orchestra, but it has been uh, westernized um, as a violin con uh, concerto. I would definitely suggest the recording that features Takako Nishizaki. Uh, before you get into your accidental, uh, Scott, Talk a little bit about what you know about the story. So who are the butterfly lovers? Well, what's the story behind these beautiful notes? Right. It's uh, two kids, essentially mm -hmm. very young kids. Um, and this young girl falls in love with a young boy and she dresses as a boy and acts as a boy so that she can go to the same school. And a lot of people want to say it's, you know, the Chinese Romeo and Juliet. But, but why don't we say that? Because <laughs> it's for, for kind people, of different. For the people who are new here. Because it's kind of different. <laughs> um, but they, they both fall into a grave. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, rather than like committing suicide, there's this, um, they're, they're reborn as butterflies. Yeah, emerging, the two, two butterflies come out of the grave. Emerging from the grave. But yeah, just to make sure people understand this ancient tale existed far before a white that's, man named William Shakespeare. So don't don't be around of, here talking about the Chinese Romeo and Juliet. No, Romeo and Juliet are the European the English and I can't remember butterfly lovers Leon Chambo and yeah. oh I can't remember the other <laughs> character's name. I, I'm I'm so sorry. It's you know it, it's the same, you know, shout out again to uh, uh Nirmala Raja Saker. She to uh Remember when she was talking about the whole life's a stage and mm -hmm. uh, the people in it merely players? That's an ancient raga. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare didn't come up with that. Right. People in Western Europe didn't he come just up wrote with it shit. Down. <laughs> you know, it's all been appropriate. Anyway, let me not get on my soapbox. Butterfly Lovers 
Violin Concerto. Go look it up. I'm so glad to have returned to it all week and to practice some of its excerpts on my new flute made of this granadilla wood. And it and is a beautiful instrument. Yeah, it so, really is. Anyway, that's that's my pick for this week. Where are you taking us this week for the second ending? Well, I have to go back to, uh, we touched on it a little bit last week. Um, half of the Eurythmics, Annie Lennox, uh, was such a huge part of my life in the 1980s with their top 40 hit. They were actually, she was actually in a band called The Tourists before that that didn't really have much impact. Okay. So as the Eurythmics, uh, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This became... Um, the the one that they're probably most known for, but that was an anthem for the era. Just that drum beat alone when it starts. Just for the just for the people who may not be familiar, this is how that this composition goes. Sweet dreams are made of this. Who am I to disagree? I travel. me about the androgynous exactly vibe what was that a was that a moment she was um, she was called the female boy george see and here we go again there we go again (laughs) no this is annie lennox right because um and you know i would i would i would say that she had a a similar impact as lady gaga because Mm -hmm. a lot for the time a lot of the things that she was doing was considered a little bit outrageous you know she was she had several different personas that you would see throughout the eras and um she was also very big in activism you know in feminist causes Mm -hmm. things like that and um, I was listening to the track Little Bird. It's, it has to be my in my top five uh, Annie Lennox tracks, not number five. But every once in a while, when you get into those moments where you feel like, man, if I could just eject right now, I would. Mm. If I could just eject. And I'm not talking about committing suicide or hurting myself or anything. I'm talking about packing up and moving to the country or quitting my job and going and cutting grass. Mm-hmm. You know, if I... If, that when I get to that point, so little bird comes up through my playlist and she's talking about wanting to fly away like the little bird does. Right. But really she's talking to her mother. She says, mama, I feel so low. Mama, I feel so low. Mama, where do I go? Mama, what do I know? We reap what we sow. They always said that, you know, best, but this little bird's fallen out of that nest. And I've got a feeling that I might have been blessed, so I have to put these wings to the test. this composition back to the purpose of the show. So when I brought in Lady Gaga last week, I was talking about how the so-called pop aesthetic is actually the stylization of a composition. And mm-hmm. we and just because we don't hear the original guitar and voice or piano and voice whatever however it existed in its original original form doesn't cancel out the fact that we can 
consider it a piece of American classical music, you know, contextualized within the global ecosystem of classical musics. Have you had time to chew on that and and think on that? As I was listening to it, I thought, okay, now this keyboard line could definitely be cellos and double basses. Annie's voice comes in. I could hear that as the oboe Mm -hmm. over the top. Sure, it's doable. And I think that that's part of what the song is telling me too, that whatever you're up against right now, uh, look, like the line says, I feel like I might've been blessed and I got to put these wings to the test. You know, you got to get out there and keep on trying and keep on flapping your wings, even though you want to stop. And Annie is, uh, she's just always giving me some inspiration and not to mention the fact that I just, whenever I, whenever she comes on the radio, I'm fidgeting with my collar like, Ooh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well. And now um, look at what she's doing now. I'll she, give you the little button. Go thank ahead. you. <laughs> and uh, now since 2018, she has been chancellor of Glasgow Caledonian University over in Scotland. So yeah. So she's, so she's teaching the, a chance. the next generation yeah. Yeah. Of, of the musicians. So. I'm gonna put you on the spot here. So mm-hmm. you're you're at work and you're getting close to the end of the hour and you realize you have five extra minutes. So you go into the computer system, you know how radio hosts do to look at to look for something to fill in that 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 bit of time. And you see in there, for some reason, you have never noticed that there is a piano and vocal arrangement of Annie Lennox's little bird. What's the break? You go, I'm sure you're going to have to give it up somehow. What is <laughs> right. the break? What do you say to the people? Uh, I would probably break it down like I just did. You know, if you ever get, uh, if you get to feeling like everything is piling up against you, um, you've made it this far. Nothing's stopping you now. You, and maybe you, you put yourself into that mindset like I was working on my house over my vacation. I don't have any other option than to do this <laughs> and to get through this. I have no other course. And most importantly, if you don't consider this a piece of classical music, you can keep all that digital heckling to yourself because I'm going to play it either way. Mm. All right, let's listen to a little bit of the end of it here to get us out. And I love that it didn't end with a fade out like mm. so many songs back in the day did. Oh, my gosh. I could not stand that. So a good, mm-hmm. a good period at the end of the <laughs> sentence. Shout out to Annie Lennox, Women's History. All right. Well, we're getting into the third movement here. So this week we have part one of my conversation with Jamie Ali Law. Jamie Ali Law is an operatic soprano. She actually played the mother in the opera that I conducted a few weeks back down in Knoxville. Jamie is a member of the Black Opera Alliance Leadership Council. And I'm going to just say, Jamie Alley Law is somebody here who is ready for it, ready for the real conversation, ready to tear stuff down and ready to build stuff anew. One of my hesitancies when it came to engaging the world of opera, even from the activist point of view, was that there wouldn't be opera singers who are ready to just 
fuck shit up, you know, mm. excuse my French. Well, Jamie is one of those people. So oh. shout out to her. And I'm so glad to share part one of my conversation with y'all this week. Uh, where we get started, we talk about living in the South and the continued dynamics of being black in the South. Jamie lives in Atlanta and has lived in Atlanta for a long time, but is from Southern California. So uh, we get the conversation started with her talking about some of the advice she was given Mm. as she moved from California to Georgia. So um, to get us into the conversation, you know, Scott, we can't have a Women's History Month without giving a shout out to the one and only Gladys Knight. Mm. You know, she has a song about Georgia. Yes, she does. I don't like listening to it a whole bunch because... I feel like what that song is preaching, it could have easily been me. You know, I could have easily been up here and not made it, got fired from my job. And let me just get back on that midnight train to it wouldn't be it would be Tennessee, but get midnight train to Tennessee. But, you know, you can't you can't run me out of town. Mm. You can't run me out of nowhere. Anyway, we're going to listen to it, though. Because it is a really incredible song, and I think a great way to frame of the beginning of this conversation. So this is me and Jamie Ali Law um, in conversation, getting us into it as Gladys Knight and the Pips with Midnight Train to Georgia. Too much for the man. Too much for the man. He couldn't make it. So he's leaving the life. He's come to know. said he's going back to find Going back to find ooh, 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 What's left of his world The world he left behind Not so long. Oh yeah, so yes, I'm from California, from Southern California and I remember we were preparing to move and my people were like, just remember when you're in Atlanta, you're in Atlanta but when you're not in Atlanta you in Georgia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew exactly what that meant. Right. And I have had that experience numerous times where in Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons we moved to Atlanta was my, my daughter was seven years old at the time. And I wanted her to have the experience of being immersed in diverse blackness, mm-hmm. right? That she just had ready access to. We didn't have to drive over here to be, you know, in Baldwin Hills with the with the bougie black people right. and the then drive head. down, right? right. <laughs> then drive, you know, go down Crenshaw and then you, you head over here and then you get these black people. I wanted her to be immersed to where she, you know, turn around and see black people occupying every rung of life, you know, as, as humans do. Right. Um, so we've certainly have gotten that experience. And also, uh, you know, there've been some times when I've been driving behind, you know, your, your neighborhood, uh, Confederate flag, um, bumper sticker, or there's a, (laughs) there's this guy that would go running around, uh, Grant Park out here, which is, uh, Grant Park and um, and it's where the zoo is but is there's this guy and, and I don't know if he's still up to it but he would just jog around the park carrying like a full on regulation size confederate flag mm. and I'm like bruh first of all it's cold outside and you got your, <laughs> you got, you got your <laughs> you, you got your Daisy Dukes on 
but I'm like, and then I'm like, isn't that heavy? And then, but why though? Yeah. <laughs> so, so many questions. Um, so yeah, there is always this inherent sense of danger, even while um, enjoying being surrounded by black folks in a way that I didn't have in California. Um, and, you know, and going up to Knoxville, it's a different, it's a different accent and it's yep. a different, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, and it's, and it's a different thing. And, and, you know, we talk, we have this conversation about bias and, and some of it is born from straight up defense protect, you know, protective mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if somebody shows up in a certain way with a certain twang and a certain look about them, you know, my defenses automatically go up until proven differently. And so I was certainly, you know, met with that as well. Um, And it's, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting dynamic that being a transplant, it it lets you, you you are more, I I am more aware of that. I feel. Mm -hmm. And now that we're a few weeks out from the world premiere of I Can't Breathe down in Knoxville, I wonder uh, how you're feeling in retrospect. Do you do you have any uh, moments that are just sticking with you from the rehearsal process or maybe even the set of performances? You know, I approached this opera in a way that I've never approached uh, any any show I've done before. Mm. I was very intentional about giving myself permission to ask for what I need. Um, Even, you know, asking myself, um, I gave myself permission to be in whatever state I was in whenever Mm -hmm. I was there. And what I found was that the each performance was so different for me um, because I came to it from whatever, you know, energy I was in at the time, you know, opening night, I was intentional about and deliberate about being peaceful and settled and just rested. And the next night, the next day I'd had a series of meetings and there was laughter and there was fun and jubilance and then going into the story and then closing happened to be uh, on the anniversary of the murder of Trayvon Martin, the, right. ten, the 10 year anniversary. And, you know, my mom and my sister were there. So there were heavier elements. And so I just noted how, how I showed up each performance and, um, and it was so different. Um, it's something that um, I am very proud of, you know, uh, technically, you know, vocally. I was just like, listen, <laughs> she too will be where she is <laughs> on each on each yep. day, yep. right? And 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 doing a. Uh, in essence, a monologue uh, for for 25 minutes back to back. 
was like, oh, okay, got, got to get her stamina back up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm but feeling all those that, 25 minutes in my shoulders and arms. <laughs> listen, come on, because you was you was up there for the long haul, right? <laughs> right, and and it was no no easy feat. My my hats off to you. Um, so yeah, you know, it was a workout. It was mm-hmm. a workout, and and even that, I was like, this is Jamie after you know emerging from a pandemic. And this is where my voice is. This is where everything is. And so this is how um, I'm going to tell the story. One of the things... One of the things that felt so good to me throughout the process was being able to connect artistically with us in that way. For me to have eye contact with you and be like, all right, Jamie, are we on the same page? It's a whole bunch of musicians over here. You know, so I I really felt like we were doing it for us. At the same Mm -hmm. time, when I think about the subject matter of the opera, the all of the trauma that is built within that opera, I wonder if that is for us sometimes what what, what do you what do you think about that it's i mean it's a even if i have a an answer it's it's one of those that i truly give every black person permission to answer for themselves right Mm -hmm. um when i first heard the title of the opera i was like well good luck to those people and whoever does it because it ain't gonna have nothing to do with me (laughs) <laughs> be blessed um because i ain't gonna do it because you know so many of us are tired yeah um and i i personally feel like i had different um kind of divine messages calling me to it and i'm so glad that i did because when i read the libretto it the i felt like the perspective was right mm-hmm Um, I felt like it was an opportunity to explore and build the dimension of humanity that exists for each of these people who have become, who, who culture has made hashtags. Right. right? And it's like, yeah, but Naj, this, this woman's son, you know, like, I had dreams for him and I was just folding, you know, his laundry, you know, and, and so to have, to have the opportunity to tell that story from that perspective, I think, um, was the value in it for me and was my, my personal call to action to do justice to amplifying the, humanness of the story much like my relationship to spirituals Mm -hmm. you know it's like uh (laughs) we gonna stop calling these people slaves right these people was people right and the most luminescent examples of humanity and we know this if we don't know it through anything else we know it through their music and through the stories and so i feel like that's something that this opera does is that it highlights the dynamics of humanity that deserve to be um, to be heard and and to do it with opera you know the 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 most powerful expression of the human voice and then you've got the the heightening with the orchestral instruments um 
I think that it is probably one of the best uses for the art form. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's one of those, it is one of those areas that with so much trauma, we must be deliberate about the perspective. Mm-hmm. The perspective is everything. One of the parts of your performance that I hate thinking about because it almost chokes me up is toward the end of the aria where you're continuing to say, put uh, David on the phone and in your voice, you know, in the in the character's voice, maybe I should say, I hear that she knows what has happened, Mm -hmm. but there's this much hope. Mm-hmm. that she's hanging on to. And sometimes I feel like it's that, you know, what the, what does the Bible say? Faith of a mustard seed. Mustard you know, seed, yeah. <laughs> is that It's that little bit of hope that keeps me going in art spaces because it can seem like such a hopeless battle to decolonize oh, all of these things. But there must be something. You, you know, you, you spoke to coming back after COVID, but I think your comeback was much more dramatic than that, coming back to the industry period as an opera singer. I wonder if you can and speak to what brought you back or what inspired you to come back. Oh, yeah, sure. I um because I you know, coming out of school, I I attempted the path that so many of us aspiring opera singers do. It's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead get these degrees. I got my bachelor's, all right? Got my my master's degree. I'm going to go out, I'm going to audition and I'm going to go boom 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 boom. And I attempted it for a season. Mm-hmm. Um, to do the the whole going up to New York audition thing. But again, that was when my daughter was about seven. We moved to Atlanta. And um, though I had probably the most ideal setup, you know, my, my older sister was living in Harlem off 143rd and Broadway. So, you know, I had the mm-hmm. key to her apartment, fly in. <laughs> Come on. I mean, listen, I was there, fly in, sleep, audition, you know, fly out. And I did it about five times in that first audition season. And I was like, girl, we can't do this. <laughs> you know, I have a whole child at home and it costs money to be back and forth. And if I do book these things, they're not going to be trying to pay me the way I need to be paid. Yeah. And so I it was in that moment that I got clear that I was going to have to I was going to have to backdoor this thing. <laughs> right. And so um, even as I was doing my work to backdoor this thing, um, it just wasn't happening in a sustainable way. And I had to get very uh, generative. I had to get very entrepreneurial. Sure. And, um, and then as I started to distance myself, I just, I, I, I started to observe the, toxicity of the culture, especially when it comes to the way that singers are treated. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of this theme of, um, you know, they, they present it as supply and demand, you know, oh, there are too many singers like and not enough roles. Yeah, very much so, very much so. And so there's a certain desperation that's built in, you know, and, and, and competitiveness. And with that, you know, people are settling for way less. I mean, we have practices within our industry that when we tell people outside of the industry, it's like, what you got to pay for a job interview? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You got to pay for an audition. What? Um, I just, I just started to to notice some things that were off. So I, I, 
I did. I stepped away. Um, and it was this opera that, um, well, I did actually, I, I, to be fair, I did a, um, an, another jazz opera before it was a, a another new composition. Um, but I guess that's, that's the way that I, I've been relating to opera has been on the periphery. And it was this opera in particular that brought me back into the fold. So it's, it's not the industry. It's almost despite the industry. Yeah. Um, that, you know, because the voice that I have is my voice and I didn't choose it. <laughs> I wanted to sing. Yeah. I wanted to be Anita Baker. <laughs> I wanted to be a sultry R&B alto. That's not the voice I got. So I'm here. Um, but that doesn't mean that I have to put up with everything else. Do you still so, aspire to the uh the New York gigs, the the big opera houses, considering the 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 spirit behind some of these smaller projects that really tell our stories? Yeah, no. I my aspirations are certainly more project based now. Um whereas before it was centered on the house, you know, yep. the theater, you know, I want to sing here, there and everywhere. And now it's more, oh, this is a project that interests me. I want to sing this role. And and it is very much, beco it's becoming apparent that my passion is more towards the new works. Yeah. Because, you know, I just, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not interested in trying to finagle, you know, trying to trying get to some somebody. kind of- well, trying to beg somebody or trying to breathe new life into, you know, this 300 year old opera, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I, that's not my ministry. And I'm not saying that they got to go away. Um, but I, I, I don't know that I'm interested. I don't know if I would do anything. I don't know that I'm interested in doing stuff from the, well-used canon. Right, right. And actually, let's get into it, because that's one of the dissonances that I have personally, that not also being my ministry, you know, fortifying these infrastructures that, you know, quiet as is kept, as much as we don't talk about it, were formed in the heat of Jim Crow, if not slavery itself, you know, in the case of some of these institutions. So, you know, while that isn't what I'm interested in, there are black folks for whom that is still the goal. At the same time, I want more for our brothers and sisters than, and, uh, than uh, an aspiration to a space that wasn't built for us and will never serve us in the way we deserve to be served. How do you deal with, with that intersection of wanting the best for us, but also affirming the folks who want to go sing at La Scala and the Met and all those places? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm one of those people that I'm like, if you want to sing there, then you should be able to sing there. That it shouldn't be obstacles and um, you know, the the practices of exclusion that keep you out. Mm -hmm. Um and so that's where my advocacy comes in. And also 
my my dream is to be able to offer viable alternatives um, is to. And it, and it doesn't it doesn't have to be an either or. Sure, sure. I, I, and also I want it to I, but I want the choices to all be choices that hold dignity. <laughs> exactly. That's the thing, you know. So it's like, no, it it, it, just, you know, the problem is not that you want to sing at this house. The problem is that that house doesn't want to do right. Mm -hmm. And I want you to be in a place that values you and that will establish a culture of creative expression, not one where black people are constantly singing this refrain of having to be 10 times better than our less talented peers simply because structural racism makes it so simply because the myth of white supremacy has already set me at a deficit, you know, because in that culture, you're not allowed to create, you're not free to explore. It's a constant, you know, sense of being under a microscope and, and people, holding expectation of your failure. Right. And based on hundreds of years, traditions that had nothing to do with us at the end of the day, had nothing to do with you that were, that were ignorant of your voice. Um, and already held judgment about your body mm-hmm. and your being. And it's like, you know, can they change? It would be great. And we've got to require it. And one of the bodies, one of the institutions out there fighting this good fight and trying to make sure, as you say, that all of the choices are choices with dignity is the Black Opera Alliance. Now, as we as we started uh, as an organization, as members of the uh, leadership council, the the primary function was to make sure that the opera companies signed our pledge for racial equity and and uh, make sure they're willing to play ball and, and that sort of thing. But lately, it seems like uh, the principal role of the Black Opera Alliance has shifted quite a bit. And, and I'll go as far as to say you've been at the head of a lot of that shifting. I, I wonder if you could uh, speak to a more a community-based approach to advocacy versus constantly banging on the door of the institutions themselves. Sure. Well, I'll go back to the origins of the organizations. It is it is the it was very much a grassroots movement uh, started off with an event uh, affectionately called the cookout, mm-hmm. um, which was a gathering, ended up being a gathering of hundreds of black opera singers based globally. And um, there were certain themes that were coming up in the conversation. And as people began to connect, you know, advocacy was born, um, potential collaborations were born and this call for this need for a space, a structure, a community that would serve as connection, would serve as a a touch point that would take, break us out of these silos that Mm -hmm. not only, um, 
not only location had us in, but also the culture of the industry has us in. And this is this is not exclusive to opera, right? Oftentimes uh, in, in different industries, you know, we're familiar with there only being one or two of us, right. you know, allowed in the space. And, and so that's another and that way. One or t- and that one or two are often concerned with maintaining their position in the space, which means their relationship with certain folks that might look like them looks a certain way or has to look a certain way anyway. It, it, it has to. It is in it is ingrained in the in in that type of a culture that it must be competitive. Mm-hmm. Right. If there can only be I mean, very Hunger Games esque, mm-hmm. if you will. It's like, you know, only one or two can be in this space and I want to be there or I'm here. And it, not to say that that's always how it goes, but that is a natural bypro- byproduct of it. And so in this community that was forming, it just so happens that, well, I won't say it just so happens. There was a collective decision that one of the most pressing um, things to be dealt with is the structural racism that exists within the industry for participants across uh, involvement spaces. So this is not just the singers. This is not just the instrumentalists in the pit. Mm -hmm. This is the directors, the designers, the costumers, choreographers, administrators, dramaturgs, every, everyone. Um, And so there needed to be, a call, uh, uh, we needed to identify what the problem is and we needed to make a direct call for addressing it. And so that's where the um, the pledge for uh, systemic change came from. And it was collaboratively drafted and crafted um, and approved within the members. It was about 600 of us at the time. And we sent it out to the uh, then Opera America signatory companies. And it's literally a pledge, right? It's not a contract. It is a declaration that says we as a company acknowledge these challenges and will make these steps towards um, remedying them. Mm-hmm. And we are willing to be in community with the Black Opera Alliance on this. And we are willing to submit to external accountability from organizations, not just the Black Opera Alliance, but other organizations that would hold accountable um, organizations in this way because it's very clear that since its inception, the opera industry has not been accountable to anyone but itself, Mm -hmm. right? And and why would you change, (laughs) you know, why would you change something that you made and you intended, right? So that was essential to do at the forefront and that was where much of our attention 
was focused out the box. But in my personal opinion, as one who was a member of the group at its forming, I don't think it was ever the intention that that be all that we are. Um, because internally, as we would show up with each other and for each other, there were many more conversations that were happening. You know, we're creatives. Folks was in there like, who's doing what? Yeah. You know, I got this voice and I want to use it. <laughs> you know, yeah. and folks was like, listen, I'm a director or I'm a composer. This is check out my work that I'm doing. And so we started to see this really strong pull towards um, connecting. And then we're seeing people saying like, hey, you know, to your point, Garrett, and what we were talking about earlier, that there were one or two people in position before the pandemic. And they would come to the group and say, hey, this is a prime opportunity. This job is available at my spot. This thing is coming open, you know, and so people started to share opportunities yeah. in the space. You know, we had people who are um, students or people who had to step away from the art because it wasn't sustaining them, um, their livelihood, but who are still very much passionate, who started to have questions, to present questions or to seek, you know, recommendations for teachers or coaches or, you know, um, financial, you know, advice with taxes and stuff like that. So we're seeing or expressing need, you know, it's like, Hey, we've, we're doing these auditions and I've got to figure out how to submit this video. Or now that we're traveling again, you know, or people just having challenges. Yeah. So we're starting to see the, I'm not starting to, from the beginning, members have come forth in ways that are not completely centered on getting the opera companies in line, right. you know, we, we have members who have their own opera companies, right? So it, it became a decided pivot. Um, and it's not a complete pivot, but a, an expansion to really look inward and cater to our needs rather than simply um, expelling all of our energy, time, focus, on fighting with the industry to change. Now that's still there, right? And it's a it's shame still, that it has to be a fight, right? <laughs> well, and, and there it is, right? Because we we oftentimes, you know, Garrett, you know, as a, as as my my fellow uh, partner on the council, we we often go into conversations with companies, uh, with general directors, and and I'm very intentional of, um, about posing it as an invitation to be in community with um, because when you commit to doing right by black folk, we can then feel more comfortable and confident engaging certain conversations, whether they be corrective conversations or sharing intellectual property, mm -hmm. right? Ideas yeah. on how we can expand the art form or 
where, you know, uh, from the beginning, one of the one of the questions that was brought to us is like, you know, I say this uh, jokingly, but for real, it's like, you know, where where the black folks at? Where the coloreds? Like we're 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 casting this. We you know we just we we don't we don't have these established relationships. Is really what is being said, and it's like oh we know this right. is why but, we had to craft the, the pledge. Question, but the question should be is why aren't black folks engaging us in that way instead of where are they or where are we? <laughs> we've we've always been here in art spaces, but there are reasons why we're not showing up to your auditions. I say we like I'm right. a singer. Why they why they're not showing Showed up to your auditions. Yeah, well, I mean, but you're an instrumentalist, right? And right. there's a reason why you ain't there no more, right? <laughs> I mean, if we're gonna talk That's about true. it, right? Yeah. So, so it is. It's a very similar conversation, and yes, to your point, Garrett, it's it we. But that's what being in relationship with us helps with is we help to even shift the perspective and the approach because I'll tell you now, like where are where where are the black people you know they're they're not here is not a winning approach mm -hmm. right and and that's and that's been a um oftentimes insincere way of um excusing the lack of black presence in these spaces because it requires accountability garrett to um acknowledgement and accountability to ask the question, why are Black people not engaging with my space? there in a performance of a work called Nights by Florence Price. She was assisted there by B.E. Boykin at the piano. Just such a pure voice mm. and a fierce and strong attitude <laughs> to go with it. I mean, Jamie is one of my faves. I can't wait to share part two of our conversation with y'all next week. But where we ended there, Jamie was talking about accountability and what it looks like. Uh, we're, we're running short on time. I'm trying to keep us under two hours, Scott. But uh, I, I wonder if you have any brief thoughts on that question. What does accountability look like? Does it look like quitting one's job? Does it look like, you know, uh, putting extra effort in in the year of 2022, despite the conversations we've been having and and a lack of equity and divert? What, you know, what, what's yeah, your reaction to that question? It's all those things. And then all, also the things that you're probably not thinking about now that you're going to have to be on the lookout for as they come sure. up. You know? Yeah, because, it's, you know, it, as I've been saying more and more, equity is not a destination. It's a journey. Right, right. It's something that you have to it's continue to to live on and and walk on. So we'll, we'll dig in more uh, next week when I offer part two of my relationship with Jamie. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and make our way into the triloquy. Our first trill this week uh, deals with the university uh, of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. So they they around here playing some games. 
So to get us into the fourth movement, I'm going to offer a recording from the orchestra that belongs to the Superior Institution mm. in Southern California. This is Sharon Lavery and the USC Thornton School of Music Symphony Orchestra performing a bit of Prokofiev. This is the end of his Romeo and Juliet. You know, I, I wanted to offer some room to Prokofiev as we continue to think about Ukraine and everything that's going on over there. Prokofiev gave it up. Mm -hmm. Go read your history about Prokofiev and his relationship with Joseph Stalin and the country of Russia. He was out here fighting for what was right, and he had to do it all the way to death, but he was doing it. And I think I prefer the ending of the butterfly lovers since since people love to say the chinese romeo and juliet uh, well, i prefer it then okay so, anyway yeah. so we're here in the in the fourth movement in the triloquy movement where i like to keep it true and real with y'all concerning some stuff that's going on this is just where i try to be my most flagrant so we're reading here scott from insidehighered.com ucla pummeled over adjunct job without pay. Wait a minute. Adjunct job without pay. Yeah. Let's take a read here. The job listing for an assistant adjunct professor was very clear. The Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at UCLA seeks applications for an assistant adjunct professor on a without salary <laughs> basis. Applicants must understand there will be no compensation for this position. Listen, we deal with this a lot in the arts. What I feel like is that UCLA thought, oh, someone would just love to have the name of our institution on their resume. Somebody will come. Somebody will come over here. And the way, after the internet told them up, like, I didn't even need to read any art. I didn't need to right. read the job description. I just needed to read my tweets. <laughs> See, I saw that come through and I went to the webpage. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to reference it the next day to record, it was already taken because down. Because they knew what they did. Right. Well, they found out what mm -hmm. they did. Mm -hmm. And it says here, too, university officials failed to note in the job listing that uh, the position could be good for someone, quote, compensated by other sources. See, we, we're we going to compensate you with by other sources. We, oh. have, we have something through a friend that we're going to. Oh, is that what you read? I read you need to have <laughs> your ass a part-time job if you want to come do this. Essentially. That's what I right, heard. Right. So. Um, I think that maybe they could get somebody to do that from my generation, but hearing you and people in your generation and lower Garrett talk, mm -hmm. I don't think that that would fly at all just to have LA because, behind your because name. Because we'll just not pay our bills. We'll do, we'll do that before we, <laughs> before we no, playing around with y'all. But, but you, you in particular would not be, at all enamored by just having the brand and that and I, you know i'm bringing this in because the arts is so guilty right. of this folks will fight to and and this is no shade but folks will fight to have curtis 
Juilliard, New England Conservatory, hell, even Thornton School of Music where I went, you know, any uh, University of North Texas, Indiana University. I'm trying to think of all of the Eastman. Ap Eastman, apple of my eye institutions out here. People will do everything to fight to have the names of those institutions on their resume, on their academic record, not understanding that there is diversity, there is excellence, all of this stuff happening all over the place. And, sc and schools are out here paying the students offering fellowships and assistantships and all of this stuff. But UCLA wants a, a full-fledged assistant adjunct faculty member to work for nothing. I've never worked in academia. Folks who I know who have worked in academia offer horror stories. And I think this is a glimpse into that world. I just did a simple uh, Google search real quick, Scott. I went to Google and I said, what is UCLA's endowment? Any guesses? It's a lot. 7.4 billion. And you mean to tell me they can't pay nobody over there in the chemistry department? Well, it it okay. doesn't go as far as it used to. Okay. I know. Well, let, well let, let's just apply this. And let's remember when we're running after these names that there's stuff going on everywhere and folks that will treat you better. You don't have to do it. You don't have to have, like Drake said about the Grammys, you don't need one of these. We need to, we need to erase ourselves of that respectability and call this shit out when we see it because they should took that down. Mm -hmm. And I guess they're gonna pay somebody because they're gonna have to because nobody's gonna, gonna have the to. job for free. All right, anyway, as as we uh, wrap up here, I just wanna uh, quickly affirm, you know, in the spirit of Women's History Month, uh, that the Senate has taken up President Biden's nomination for Katanji Brown Jackson to uh, replace uh, Justice Stephen Breyer on the uh, Supreme Court. The pick uh, will make her the first black woman nominated uh, to the Supreme Court. This is very important. This is great news. I'll even hit the round of applause button. And Scott, can she make change? Considering the way that the Supreme Court has been so politicized and now it matters how many conservatives and how many so-called liberals you have on the, on the Supreme Court, you know, those numbers matter. Can she make change. We're celebrating her. And it's important that we finally, in all these years of the United States, have a black woman up there. Can she? How good of a communicator is she? I don't know much about her. I mean, I know that w the job that she is in now before uh, going through all this process, I know that she got universally confirmed, you know, bipartisan support. So it's hard to believe that they won't do it again. Mm -hmm. But as far as making change, um, what sort of an orator? What's you know how how do, how is she at writing these? Uh, what do they call it when they come back with a, the bills or whatever? Do you think that matters? Do you think it's consequential considering how uh, partisan things have been? We talked about the Crown Act at the very beginning of this mm -hmm. opus that went straight down party lines. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the things that Katanji would have to be dealing with um, if if she's affirmed. I believe that she will be. Uh, Roe v. Wade, you know, all, all of these big things that are, are going to be challenged once again. You think her ability to offer incredible, insightful prose will be what pushes some of the more conservative uh, judges one Hers way or another? Hers is a perspective that we haven't had yet. Okay. Okay. So if, if she can communicate that effectively, then there's a chance. But when you frame it in broad terms like you just did, no. I'm holding out hope. I also think here on my platform on this thing called Triloquy, we need to keep it real. I don't know how much change she can make. 
in this system the way that we have seen it. That's you know? what I'm saying. We have yeah. a, we have AOC in there mm-hmm. not getting anything passed because she can't. She's on her not, own. Not not because she isn't fighting. So because she can't. So as we think as we think about folks like Kataji Brown Jackson, let's make sure that we're affirming each other and not leaving anybody out there to dry. I want to believe that this bit of women's history will actually manifest in something great, something consequential, something beneficial for us here in these so-called United States. You said, you know, she's a uh she has the potential to, you know, use her words for good and her new perspective to the history of the Supreme Court. I think that's a good point mm-hmm. you make. So I'll Hold out hope. Um, and other news from the U.S. Supreme Court, I'm reading here from Reuters, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thomas, you know, our our, our favorite uh, our, our favorite black Supreme Court justice who's a conservative. He's in the hospital for an effect infection. Mm, mm, mm. Thoughts and prayers. We'll see y'all next week. 